Hello, welcome to Filmwalk. This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. And tonight we're going to be reviewing the new action comedy from director Tom Gormican, The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, in which Nicolas Cage plays a fictionalized version of himself. Uh, however, first we're going to be checking out a film from last year. This is from director Radu Jude, and that film is called Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn. That was from the trailer of Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, one of two unwieldy titles we are dealing with this week, and the second of two unwieldy titles that we have seen from writer-director Radu Jude, who previously did the, I believe, 2018 film I do not care if we go down in history as barbarians, which featured a an intense intellectual discussion on the epistemology of fascist thought and some fucking. So now here in 2021, uh, in the middle of a pandemic with most of his characters masked up, we have another film from director Radu Jude, which features an intense epistemological discussion about the origins of fascist thought and some fucking. Ostensibly, this film is about Emmy, the uh, teacher character played by Katia Pescariu, who uh, films a sex tape with her husband, Eugene, who's off screen, we never see him, uh, and it gets uploaded to the interwebs uh, either by her husband or by somebody at a computer repair shop. It's unclear how it got out there. The point is, it's out there, and it has now become a scandal, as these things always do. It's not treated as uh, a thing that was stolen from her against her will and a violation of her privacy, which is what it in fact was. It's treated like something bad that she did and a thing that the parents of the community need to come together and have a discussion about. So that is potentially the stuff of an interesting drama. What did we get instead, Daniel? Wasn't much of a drama. Yeah, it really wasn't. I don't get the feeling that this movie ever seriously engaged with its subject matter. Did that Did that sound about right to you? They touched on it at the beginning of Act 1, and it's Act 3, but Act 2 is weird. Act two is called A Short Dictionary of Anecdotes, Signs, and Wonders. It begins at 36 and a half minutes into the film, and it proceeds for almost a full half hour. Let me see here. Yeah, it was uh, an hour and two minutes when uh, when that section was over. And what it was, it was like a tour through the museum of the moving image. It was uh, a little bit of uh, a particular word in Romanian would come up on screen, uh, and then the subtitle would say what it is. And then there would be some little clip of archive footage often with text on screen. Sometimes there was audio accompanying it. And this was kind of just Radu Jude having a YouTube party and directly addressing the audience and saying, here's some shit that you need to know about Romanian society and history. And Daniel, we're, we're kind of used to this, right? Because I do not care if we go down in history as barbarians was a very similar premise to this movie, but it really seriously engaged with the subject matter, which was about a specific theatrical performance that was going to be put on with City Money. Uh, on the streets of, uh, of Bucharest. So the question was, should city money be spent to tell this particular version of history, which is a story that feels so supremely relevant to modern politics, especially as we have a resurgent fascist right that is actively waging a war on historical truth here in the United States and elsewhere. So 
I found that utterly fascinating in that film. In this film, it felt more like Radu Jude just kind of fucking around with those same themes with some sex in place and very cheeky, like, uh, rainbow censorship screens that talk about how censorship equals money in Comic Sans. And uh, sorry, you can't see the fucking, folks. We know that's what you came here for, but uh, the fucking is happening right behind that censorship frame, which is right there on the screen. And don't worry, every act of the fucking is very detailed and narrated. Indeed. If, uh, if, we, if we can't see what's going on, the text on the screen will literally tell us what's going on. And that's kind of just how it goes from there. It's, uh, it also dabbles in all the same Romanian history that, uh, that barbarians did. It, it talks about Amanescu, their national hero poet, uh, who hated the Jews, we learned in the previous movie. It talks about Antonescu, their national martial guy who perpetrated massacres of the Jews and the Roma on the Eastern Front. This is not a movie that you would expect to touch upon those themes, and it seems as if Radu Jude's kind of political nihilism about modern Romania is to say, well, this society is so fucked up that any moral precepts that they have, any righteous indignation that they have is completely insincere and incredible. And he made that point about five minutes into this movie, and everything after that was kind of just him waggling it at the screen. (laughs) There was a lot of waggling. Yeah, he did, he was definitely just beating the same drum for the uh, duration of the film. The story, limited as it was, was somewhat interesting, but I wasn't that invested in it, to be honest. I thought it was fine to watch. I thought the 30-minute uh, act two was too long. There was some interesting stuff in the 30-minute act two, though. I'm not saying it's all bad. I would have cut maybe like four or five of the vignettes out. I think some of the vignettes could have been trimmed. I noted a few of my favorite vignettes here. Uh, one of them was cinema. And he talks about how we learned in the story. Uh, we learned in school the story of Medusa, uh, the Gorgon, who uh, if you stare it in the eyes, it will turn you to stone. And he then lays out a metaphor that cinematic depictions of atrocities serve the same purpose as Athena's polished reflective metal shield. Because if you don't look directly at the thing that scares you, you can't be paralyzed with fear. You can only see it through, uh, through the lens of somebody else's reflected version of it which is a very interesting if supremely unsubtle metaphor that is on display here um and obviously and you know it's basically him spelling out the theme of his previous film uh, barbarians uh, he also said uh, history and life unlike novels and stories do not teach a lesson of superficial joie de vivre even to the happily constituted spirit and senses the contemplation of history is more likely to inspire if not contempt for humanity than a somber vision of the world and that is probably not a radu jude quote very little of what he quotes in this film is is his own work. It's 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 philosophers, it's historians, it's education experts. At one point, they they debate whether having children memorize facts is useful, whether it stimulates their brains. I mean, the ideas in this movie were all over the place. It just felt like reading Radu Jude's diary aloud for ninety minutes. Yeah, a bit. It's, it's his take on Romanian culture, history, fascism, communism. So one of the things that I learned about Romanian culture is that people are really rude and aggressive, whether they're driving cars or they're in shopping markets. Like there's a lot of Karens in Romania, which I thought was interesting. And boy, I, I tell you, like the, the, the railway laws must be very different in Romania because they'll just run you over if you're in the crosswalk or even if you're not on the crosswalk. And apparently the car has the right away, not the pedestrian. So that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's not that different from the United States, really, if you think about it. We've just got a more litigious kind of culture. Well, our cars are bigger, too. So, like, these are small cars that are running over people. So it feels a little bit more intimate. 
That's true. Although we do see some utterly jacked up trucks, uh, you know, parking on the sidewalk or parking in the middle of the street or parking in a crosswalk. Like, again, very unsubtle. But um, none of this felt like observations that were specific to Romania. It was interesting for me as an American to learn that these phenomena are there in Romania as well. It certainly seemed like he was calling attention to sort of a breakdown of basic civility during the pandemic, people's unwillingness to to sacrifice themselves for the greater whole, people's unwillingness to engage in basic protections, uh, people's unwillingness to tolerate minor incursions on their freedom. It's all themes that seem pretty well tread at this point. Uh, so I didn't really, I wasn't really blown away by any of them. Yeah, there were four of the vignettes that I think landed with me one was about just uh, uh how prevalent child abuse is in romanian culture uh, that was uh pretty jarring the uh crisis dance where those three guys were dancing with the sticks so that they could be six feet apart and mocking the pandemic i googled how many uh, romanians have died from covid 19 like sixty-five thousand so far so good on them. Yeah, they did a better job than we did per capita. I don't know how many people are in Romania, but I'm guessing they did. Well, there's probably less testing, too. Uh, and I would say uh, the two vignettes about environmentalism uh, landed with me because that's, that, to me, is the most important issue there is. Well, there was the juxtaposition of a water park with a river full of floodwaters and garbage. That was the one I remember. And then th- there was another one called Justification, which featured a bunch of pigs yes. behind a butcher counter. And then a father, which I'm assuming he didn't like seeing, but then the father explaining to his son why pigs are eating because God says so. I figured you'd probably appreciate the ironic way in which that was being presented. I mean, yeah, that was the justification I got as a kid. You know, it was less religious and more like, well, that's what they're here for. And I was like, but you're saying that because you get to take advantage of that. And they're like, eat your ham. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you have another one that you liked? Oh, there was the uh, fur coat one, oh, yes. just because I, I hate fur coats. Um, she asked if it was real fur, and they said, yes, Arctic fox, of course. And I was like, ah, fuck all of you people. <laughs> right. Um, a few other minor ones. I liked the ruminations on pornography, um, the, that pornography literally means portrait of a prostitute. I liked the one that was literally just cunt, and it was an artistic painting of a woman's vagina, at her uh, labia, with her spread legs. But that painting was blocking the view of an actual woman with her legs spread. And that just felt like sort of a cutesy commentary on the censorship frame and the other parts of this film. Of course, then the censorship frame makes another appearance, makes several more appearances. Here's the question I had on the narrative that didn't make sense to me. So she uploads this video that she makes with her husband to a adult website. Well, it was uploaded to an adult website. She denied actually doing it, but she did use the basis of that as an adult website as a def- as a point at- she did use the basis of that as an adult website as a point in her defense. That's to say, this is an adult website. Your kids went to it on devices that you bought for them. Therefore, you know, you're, you as a parent bear some responsibility for what they saw. Here. Okay, maybe I, that, that's what I misunderstood. It, I was taking it as she and her husband uploaded this to a, an adult website and then kids found it. I don't think that's what happened, but they were a little cagey about exactly how the video got uploaded there. At one point, she said that she told the headmaster that her husband uploaded it and she gave him an earful for it. And then later on, she spun a story about them taking it to a computer repair shop and suddenly it was on the internet after that. So we don't really know how... Yeah, I guess, like, why would somebody upload it to a a porn site like Pornhub and not expect it to get out? Well... I mean, the sheer quantity of amateur porn that exists on the internet would seem to suggest that it's a risk that a lot of people are willing to take. <laughs> but I, I, I don't get it. I also don't get the excessive narration. Like, that would just take me out of the mood, personally. 
Like, stop talking about it. Just, just do it if you're going to do it. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not going to critique the sex tape here, but there were plenty of people at the uh, the sort of trial uh, during the third act that were critiquing specific sex acts and things like that. And, and I guess what I got from that is that uh, is that conservatives in Romania are a bit worse than conservatives in the U.S. <laughs> but other than that, I mean, acting morally outraged about oral sex in, in 2022 just feels quaint. <laughs> Um, but these people were also busting out anti-Semitic conspiracy theories in between. So, you know, trade-offs. I also enjoyed the segment called patriotism, uh, which I, I'm not going to repeat the, uh, the joke that was made there, but it was, it was basically pointing out that patriotism being centered around the ability to inflict violence on a, on a uh, lesser population because your, your country gives you the freedom to do it was a nice touch. I also liked the, uh, there was a segment called city, which called out the arbitrary nature of architectural admiration and historical nostalgia. Uh, and it pointed out that if we were to stop burning coal tomorrow, those smokestacks and chimneys would suddenly become like the temple columns of old. And I'm like, oh, that's an interesting idea. It might That might be true if we didn't, you know, detonate all of them. Maybe. Like, it's one of those, it's a nice thought on the surface, but if you think harder about it, you're like, ah, probably not. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, on the flip side, we had materials that were uh, that have lasted this long because they were among the few that were made to last, but also because they were made of stone and marble, and they were the products of like an entire society's effort and slave labor to produce in the first place. So, but I think the movie had some awareness about that as well. At one point, we see the House of the People, which the tour guide straight up calls the Ceausescu Palace, um, and talks about what horrible things happened there and how she saw a woman like fall to her death during its construction when she was a child. And the Chinese tourists are just like, yeah, like, stop talking about this. Talk about nice things. We're taking selfies. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, Daniel, I don't have much to say here. We couldn't spoil this movie if we tried. It has three endings, and it asks you to pick your favorite one. I will say my favorite one was the one that the uh, the freeze frame for the closing credits. It's obviously the most viscerally satisfying one, but like none of, none of it matters. The issue is never engaged with in any serious way. My favorite ending was the second one where they all bug her out and then she leaves. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Because, like, honestly, I was here for the, uh, um, the pilot guy. He entertained me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we had people in there representing various points of view. And they at least showed them pulling their phones out to suddenly have all of these quotes and all these citations around. Like, we're in, in the Barbarians film. We had two historical academics who were just busting out this information off the top of their heads. and. I was able to suspend disbelief for that because of the context that gave them that knowledge. They were both in jobs where it made sense for them to be able to make those sorts of that to perform that sort of oratory on command. And also it was very it was very lengthy. It sat in those ideas for a while. This movie, the entire thing felt like that second act to me when they were having their debate during the final trial. It was just one fucking thing after another. It was all over. The place. I think like I was outside and that people are wearing masks and for the most part wearing masks correctly. So good on them. Yeah, and there was a lot going on in that courtyard, too. I liked how they, people came in, like, lighting torches and scrubbing off statues, and, and we got to see them treat their, their service workers as garbage, you know. Just to remind us that nobody's on the side of the angels here properly, so. Yeah, uh, that's about all I got. This movie, honestly, was kind of a disappointment to me. I was expecting better from uh, from the creator of the Barbarians film, and I would just say, go see the Barbarians film if you want to see Radu Jude's best possible version of this. This just felt like the best possible version of this that he could make in a pandemic on a shoestring with a limited cast. I don't really disagree with that. I thought it was fine, but I, I wasn't really that engaged in the, in the story as simple as it was, and the second act, I guess, thought went too long. Like there were vignettes as we have, we 
there were vignettes as we discussed that we enjoyed, but I don't know. I guess like I was just kind of waiting for it to be over. Yeah, it's a short enough movie that it, like if any of what we're just describing sounds interesting to you, maybe check it out. It's on Hulu. But if you have the chance to see, I do not care if we go down in history as barbarians. That is far and away the one I would recommend more. That one ended up in my top ten for that year. Uh, it's entirely possible that that movie, that movie's aimlessness, felt a bit more directed to me. If that makes any sense. Um, but it's possible that that might just be all that all that is in Roger Jude's uh, repertoire. And I guess fair enough. He already uh, he already cracked the best possible version of that a few years ago. Well, uh, if you want to check out Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, it is on Hulu today. That brings us to the end of our discussion of that film. And now on to our review of The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. What did he say? He says he loves you, but he went in a different direction. I'm done. I'm quitting acting. Tell the trades it was a tremendous honor to be a part of storytelling and myth-making. I'm sorry, one more time. We got another offer. It's a million bucks. It's to attend a wealthy gentleman's birthday party. I would never do that. It's the easiest gig ever. You play yourself. What do we know about this guy anyway? Is he into something strange? It's not like he's gonna want you to suck his dick or fuck his wife or watch you watch him fuck his wife. I wouldn't think so. Welcome to Mallorca, Mr. Cage. The guy that owns this house, what's his name? Javi. Is Javi gonna want me to, uh... Play him, Javi. Nick Cage. God, this place is stunning. What is your favorite movie? That's one of those questions that's impossible to answer. You can't just limit it to one. Imagine me and you. I do. Is it too much? Okay. Is this supposed to be me? It's grotesque. I'll give you 20,000 for it. That was from the trailer of The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, the new film from director Tom Gormican, with a screenplay co-written by Gormican and Kevin Eaton. The film stars Nicolas Cage as Nick Cage, with a K, uh, a fictionalized version of himself, the super-famous Hollywood actor who is ready for a comeback, even though he never went anywhere. Uh, He is offered a million dollars to attend the birthday of a billionaire superfan, Javi Gutierrez, played by Pedro Pascal, who lives on an island off the coast of Spain and gets wrapped up in some injuries intrigue involving the motherfucking cia because javi gutierrez is possibly not what he seems so daniel this film really knows how to market itself i think that's fair to say you and i are both sitting on a pair of uh, little cardboard uh, fans that have different pictures of nicholas cage's face on them we've taken all sorts of pictures of ourselves with them at least i have we we have yes yeah, posted them all over the place. Um, the uh, you know they had a giant rainbow statue of his head in the lobby and encouraged us to take photos of it. And uh, we did. I want to say the uh, the hashtag for this is just Nick Cage film. I think I think they they expect nobody's going to bother with the full title. It's a long and title. They really want people to just be excited about that Nick Cage film in which Nick Cage plays Nick Cage. And all I was thinking going into this was I really hope it's good. I hope it's as good as they want it to be from this premise. Clearly. This is a movie that I expect is probably going to do some business. It's a movie that I think maybe even deserves to do some business. I was entertained by it, but I would say at best it is two-thirds of a good movie. What would you say to that? I would agree with you, actually. Uh, it is two-thirds of a good movie, but it really depends on which two-thirds you're speaking of. Indeed. Um, I think 
at its best, this movie could have been something like Tropic Thunder. And I think maybe that was what it was striving for. We even have Neil Patrick Harris as uh, as Nicolas Cage's agent. And he's, of course, a ridiculous version of himself. We also have Nicolas Cage uh, playing another version of himself, Nicky Cage, who is an imaginary version of his younger self, sort of an embodiment of his talent. And we see a number of two shots with the two of them interacting. And, I, you know, I was I was having throwbacks to Adaptation where he played twin brothers, uh, one of whom was also a, uh, a wholly imaginary version of, uh, of, of the screenwriter of the film. Uh, so I appreciated that. Um, I was very entertained by it. Everything that Nicolas Cage brought to the table in this film, uh, from his from his solipsism about his own career to his ability to speak insufferably at length about movies that he loves, which of course includes The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, which is just a cinephile's wet dream, and uh, one I, I still have not seen this one, Daniel. I'll admit it. Have you have you ever seen Caligari? I've not. I've heard of it, but I've not seen it. It is an insane hundred-year-old German film it's from like 1922. It's a solid film. It's supposed to be pretty interesting, but uh, but it's one of those ones that uh, I think literally I got it from Netflix back when Netflix used to mail you DVDs. Oh, number four times. It sat on top of my dresser for eight weeks or so, and then I returned it without watching it, as we did in those days. What a time. But uh, and pa- and then we have Pedro Pascal as Javi Gutierrez, who is a super fan and uh, you know a billionaire, and also possibly an arms dealer and that is what brings in uh, a pair of cia agents played by tiffany haddish and ike barinholtz who want him to help infiltrate this compound uh in order to rescue the kidnapped daughter of an opposition politician who is uh, running for the for the presidency of catalonia is that the idea that was that was the, what was told yeah which for some reason the united states has a strong stake in you know America. we we really care about interior spanish politics yeah, this this really feels like one of those things where they picked the place to shoot based on where they got tax breaks. But this movie was shot in fucking Croatia, so I'm not even sure if that's the case. It's very odd that this movie takes place in Spain, but there just have have the movie take place in Croatia. So, as a buddy comedy between Nicolas Cage and Pedro Pascal, what did you think of the film? Oh, I was a hundred percent on board for that. Like that was funny. Like I enjoyed it. I thought they had great chemistry with one another. I. I was having a great time. And you know what? For a movie that went lasted an hour and 46 minutes, which, by the way, most movies really should be in that one hour and 30 minute to one hour, 45 minute, you know, window. Because, honestly, it's just excessive at this point. Every movie has to be three fucking hours, and I don't get it. Like, it's not – most movies don't earn that. Uh, this movie was entertaining for most of that span. I had a great time with it. I had a great time with Nick Cage and Pedro Pascal. As buggies, uh, as uh, getting to know each other, the screenplay, you know, Pedro Pascal being so nervous to share his screenplay with uh, Nick Cage, like that stuff entertains me. Pedro Pascal was playing a very vulnerable version of himself uh, in this, which is surprising to say as a billionaire arms dealer, like he was he was giddy. He was very smiley. He was clearly having a great time. And also Nick Cage had to get vulnerable with him as well, because he's playing a version of himself that has no desire to be there. But he's still kind of having a good time in spite of himself. And watching the two of them kind of develop, uh, you know, buddy-buddy chemistry uh, over the course of this, it kind of reminded me in a good way of the Trip series of films with Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon. Now, these two, neither of them is primarily a comedian, and these two were not bantering on that level, but they were kind of doing their own thing with that level of chemistry between them. And I really appreciated that. 
I don't really have a ton more more to say about this, except that when it devolved into, let's say, what they what they referred to in the film as something for everyone territory, where it, where it kind of went straight into the action thriller elements in the third act, I was kind of just waiting for it to be over. I've had that reaction to films before. Uh, David Gordon Green, oddly, who appears in this film as himself uh, toward the beginning, did a film called, what was it? Uh, he did Pineapple Express back in 2008, and that was another one that uh, was a comedy. It was a stoner comedy primarily, and then it became like a fairly serious action film in the third act and i was completely tuned out of it for that third act so i think this is just maybe a problem that i have with action comedies in general uh very few of them have landed with me because as soon as they become proper action movies i'm forced to grapple with the fact that they're just not that good as action movies and at that point the comedy has left the building so it's just not that interesting anymore so that's kind of where i'm at but that's that feels like a specific problem with this genre for me not such a problem with this specific film yeah, I have to echo that a little bit. I felt like when it went into action set-piece mode, I was losing interest. I, I was here for the comedy. I was here for the awkwardness and the, and the buggy-buggy uh, atmosphere between Pedro Pascal and, and, and Nick Cage. I didn't care that much about the, the rescuing of, uh, of the president's daughter. Like The action stuff was fine, but it was really basic. Unlike everything everywhere all at once i wasn't just waiting hopefully hoping like a movie would end at any moment but i was just like all right we're gonna do the action stuff yeah that guy's gonna get hit by a car okay they're gonna have a shootout and it's gonna end in a movie theater like all right it's not to say that the entertainment ended as soon as we reached the end of act two and i was just tediously sitting through it all the stuff that worked in acts one and two was also present in the third act there was just less of it because it was focusing on the action part of it as well so um I would say the movie remains entertaining throughout. It's just, it's peaked by the time you reach the end of Act 2, and you sh- you could maybe go take a long piss after that. Yeah, kind of. It was just a, at the point when we got to the third act, I, was, I wasn't disengaged from the film, but I was definitely like, I guess I knew what beats they were going to hit, and so I was just waiting for them to get through those beats. But I wasn't like a, tuned out or disliking the film. I guess that part wasn't that interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, all the fourth wall prodding stuff where they kind of debate what the what the ending of their movie should be. And like, yeah, they're they're debating the ending of this movie. It's almost a throwback to adaptation, which was also a let's write the screenplay to this movie kind of thing, but a much more serious version of that, Um, which also devolved into action thriller territory. But in a way that a moved a lot faster and B did not feel completely out of keeping with the rest of the film. This film felt more like it was trying to be something like Seven Psychopaths by Martin McDonough, where it's like, let's debate the ending of the film, but let's also be a pretty serious action movie. And it was just not as good of an action movie as it thought it was. Uh, That was the impression I got anyway. Yeah, and I have to say, the CIA agents, you know, uh, like Baron Holtz and uh, Tiffany Haggish, like, they were entertaining, but really their characters didn't have much to do. Yeah. I, I like those actors very much. I think they had good banter, but I don't have much else to say about them. And they were not that important in this film. This is the this is the Nicolas Cage and Pedro Pascal show. And if you can if you can be on board for that, you know, all the stakes involving Nick Cage himself felt pretty conventional. And they also felt like they were hitting beats that I've seen his characters hit in previous films. Like, how many times can I watch this guy repair his relationship with his teenage daughter? Like, he's been doing that for literally 25 years. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. It's... Uh, that, the parts of it that worked worked really well. The parts of it that didn't, I was just, I've seen this before. So, um, yeah, I, I would say on the balance, I would, I would say I still liked the film and it's worth checking out. I was entertained for the majority of it. A lot of the comedy and the physical comedy landed really well. Um, just a pretty mundane action movie after that. Yeah. I would say it was a entertaining comedy film, mediocre action film. There you go. 
Well, dude, we finished that one in half as much time as uh, as our previous film, which I would not have called in advance. So there you go. All right. Well, if you have any feedback on our discussion of the unbearable weight of massive talent, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. Ideally, we will pick two films that have shorter titles, which we will discuss for a lengthier period of time next week. So stay tuned for that. Uh, thank you, Daniel, for joining me this week. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me. And uh, thank you for tuning in at filmwonk.net and have a good night.